0: of persons was all in all about 120 and he said brothers the scripture has been fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus for he was numbered among us and he was allotted his share in his in this ministry now this man acquired a field and with the reward of his wickedness with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his b- bowels gushed out And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let no other take his office, or let another take his office. Um, So one of the men who had accompanied us. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I promise I practiced. I still butchered it. I'm so sorry, John.
1: All good. How you guys doing? Good. Good. Well, we have an interesting passage tonight. How many of you guys like this is your favorite passage? You've got it underlined and highlighted in your Bible and Yeah. This is uh this is a good one. There's betrayal and suicide, there's unity, there's prayer, there's Falling headlong and bursting open, blood money, and seemingly mundane, normal church business—all happening in one passage. It's a good one. We we meet a guy named Matthias that really you'll never hear about again in the book. Uh, He's kind of this this is his moment to shine. And the commentaries on this passage are all over the place, as far as, like, some of them are as bold as to say that the disciples were wrong, and that they missed it, and that they should have just waited, and the Apostle Paul was supposed to be the 12th. Obviously, I think that's, I mean, complete rubbish. It's nonsense. Um... But really their, their point there is that um, they often point to the reality that we don't know what happens with Matthias. We don't know anything else about this guy. There's nothing else that we learn. But the reality is, and this is an interesting, besides Peter, James, and John, Luke's not really interested in telling us what happens with the rest of these guys. We know that they're active. We know that the Lord uses them, that the Lord establishes and builds his church, and that he uses these 12, 11 plus the one. Uh, but Luke doesn't tell us all of their stories. He's really going to emphasis, he's going to focus in the first half of this book on Peter, and then the last half focuses almost exclusively on Paul. But that doesn't mean that any of them are any less important. Ultimately, the the meta-narrative, the big story of what God's doing through his church needs all of them. And so that's why this story is here. It's an important one. So here's where we're at. So far, the disciples have received this promise. They've received the promise that they're to wait for the Spirit. There's a, a coming of the Spirit. They've spent 40 days with the resurrected Jesus, learning and watching. They, they have spent time in this amazing seminary with the risen Lord, having the scriptures opened up to them. They watched in amazement as he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then they're told, they're, they go to wait. They go to Jerusalem, and they wait. We know from elsewhere that there was at least 500 who had seen the risen Lord. Now, we know that there's 120, roughly, in this upper room in Jerusalem. I honestly don't know what to make of that, except it's an interesting thing that we see throughout Scripture, that that it seems to be like the Lord pairs things down. You see that through uh, elsewhere in Scripture. It goes 500... 120, and then ultimately, out of that 120, there's two guys that get highlighted here. So we pick up our story tonight in Jerusalem. They were there together in one accord, verse 14, they're in one accord, they're praying, they're devoting themselves to prayer. We looked at a few weeks ago that they're told to wait, but that wait does not mean that they sit by passively or inactively, that there's, there's business that's going on, there's things that are happening. They're waiting, but they're active. They're together, they're in unity, they're praying, they're seeking God and worshiping. In no way are they passive. And then we get to this whole section about Judas. Judas. We have to ask, why Judas? Why is this here? As you're reading Acts, as you're rereading it, as I hope you are, and you're going through multiple times reading these chapters, if you're like me, you come to this section about Judas, and you kind of just scratch your head. (laughs) Like, what is going on? Why? I mean, why would Judas do this? But then also, Luke, why? Why? why is this so important to kind of inject this here? What's the deal? It feels kind of odd. It's, it's sandwiched in between this promise, this hopeful expectation of the coming of the Spirit. This promise that they would be clothed with power from on high and the fulfillment of that promise in Acts 2 at Pentecost. It's sandwiched between this, this hopeful promise And the fulfillment of that promise, you get this story of betrayal and suicide and the replacement of this guy. You have to step back and ask, why Luke? Why would you put this here? Under the inspiration of the Spirit, why did he feel like it was so important to highlight this? Why all the concern with Jesus and how he died and the field that was purchased with the blood money, and why was he replaced with this guy, Matthias? I think there's a clue in the beginning of how Peter addresses this. If you go to verse 16, Acts 1.16, Peter stands up and he says this, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Can you imagine for a second just the roller coaster that these guys had been on? I know we give them a hard time. We give the disciples a hard time. But think for a second of the roller coaster journey these guys have had. The deepest lows and the highest highs all packed into a short period of time. This little group, this little band of brothers, had had to have been meeting regularly. They're meeting regularly trying to discuss what had just taken place since the cross. Can you imagine the horror and disbelief that had come over this band of friends as they just watched this one who they expected... To be the Messiah, the one that they had followed and given their life to, the one who they trusted more than anything, be handed over to the Romans and crucified. They thought he was the one, but their hopes, their dreams were crushed, smashed as they watched him crucified. And what's worse is that he was taken away in the most awful way possible. Betrayal. The worst kind of betrayal of a close friend. Betrayed with a kiss of a close friend. Handed over. But then, they couldn't believe the news. They didn't believe it. The ladies come running back on that Easter morning, they tell him the good news. A few days later, Jesus is risen. Despite hearing out of Jesus' own mouth that he would rise from the dead, they, didn't, they still didn't seem to believe that it was possible. With joy, as it begins to set in, they realize that Jesus is indeed alive. He spends 40 days convincing them that he is alive. He's well, he's risen. You have to imagine this roller coaster, this this intense low with this amazing joy. Nothing could dampen their spirits. They finally realize that he is alive and well. Surely He's going to lead the revolt and tear down the Roman oppressors. I can only imagine the pressure, the social pressures, the focus on all these problems. The religious establishment in Rome, they wanted nothing more than to suppress this news of the resurrection. Whether they believed it or not, it was not good for their power, for their authority, for their strength and dominion. There's pressures all around these Jesus followers to get them to conform to the status quo, to reject this idea of a risen king, a crucified and restored, resurrected Jesus. So they go to Jesus. We looked at this last week. And they say, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom? Is it the time? Are you going to do it? Are you going to restore your kingdom? They had been with Jesus in his earthly ministry for three years. They had seen, had a front row view of his execution, his resurrection. And they're still captivated with this prevailing idea of what they thought he should be doing. They still thought he was only a political figure. They still thought the nation of Israel would be restored predominantly through him taking his position as king and ruler in that moment. It's understandable. I mean, this would solve all of their current problems. This would fix everything. But he didn't, at least not in the way they wanted him to. He didn't do it the way they expected him to or they they wanted him to. He says, wait. Wait. And then he ascends. He says, power is coming. You will be clothed with power from on high. Wait. Can you just imagine that roller coaster? (laughs) So now they're, now here they are. They're in Jerusalem. They're waiting. And I love how Luke highlights what happens here. There's still a very real sting of betrayal. There's still a very real sting of betrayal that's commingled with this joy of the resurrection. This wonder of the ascension. But there's still a very real sting of betrayal and disappointment. We've we've all been there, right? This this mix of joy and yet pain. Can you imagine? Their close friend, their brother that thought they thought who was with them, betrays their master, betrays them. That still stings. It's 50 days later. It still stings. They're still feeling it. This band of brothers is down to 11. They've lost one. What I love about how Luke tells this, he gives us this little interlude, this little injection of this story. I love that he doesn't gloss over the negative here. He doesn't just pass over the sting of betrayal. He actually confronts it head on. Peter addresses the group, fresh off this 40-day experience with Jesus where the Old Testament had been opened up to him, and he could see that it all pointed to Jesus. Fresh off this immersion Bible study with Jesus, Peter addresses the group, and he says two things that I want to focus on tonight. Verse 16, he says, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. They had to be fulfilled. Then he says, concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. You should feel the tension there. Scriptures had to be fulfilled. God is sovereign and he is accomplishing his will. But he became a guide. Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He helped them. He led them to him. He betrayed him. He was numbered among them. He shared in their ministry, in their life. He did life with them for years. He was a brother to them. I'm sure we've all felt some sense of betrayal. This is deep, this sense of betrayal that they had felt. I think it's interesting that Peter uses this word guide, that Judas became a guide to them. Typically, we think of guides as a good thing. This is if you get a hunting guide, they're going to lead you to the game. If you a hiking guide, they're going to show you all the good viewpoints. If you get a tour guide, they're going to show you the good views and how to avoid the, the traps, right? Guide's a good thing, but not this guide. Judas, in contrast, was a guide for evil. Judas allowed the God of his own greed to take over his life. The almighty silver coin was what he centered his life around. He didn't care how his greed was affecting the rest of them. He wasn't, none of that bothered him. His only concern was himself. Judas became a guide to death. With a kiss, he handed over his friend, his master, to be crucified. And here's the thing. Not to make light of Judas, but we should realize this, that Judas wasn't the only one who sinned. Judas wasn't the only one who sinned in this story, not by a long shot. Think about this. All of the disciples, all of them, participated in, Effectively in the handing over of Jesus. Every one of them. Peter gets a prominent notion here, right? We know that he denied Christ three times. He, he denied that he even know, knew him. But all 11 of the rest of the disciples ran away from the trouble of the cross. They all left Jesus to face his arrest and his trial alone. John, who calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, he followed along at a distance. He went to witness the trial. He even made sure that his buddy Peter could get in to the high priest's courtyard. But did John say anything? Did he open his mouth in defense of Jesus at all? No. Not a single word. Silence. Even after the resurrection, they had various levels of disbelief, lack of faith. Thomas is the well known one. We all know Doubting Thomas. But they all refused to believe to a certain level the witness of Jesus' resurrection until they also were eyewitnesses. The silence of Jesus' disciples in the face of adversity, unfortunately, is pervasive even today. I mean, that's just if we're honest about it. We all find ourselves in similar situations. It's easy to keep silent. It's easy to stand in the corner and let things go passively. Our lack of a vibrant, clear witness of Jesus and his effect of the gospel and his teaching on our life, it's the same as John keeping silent or Peter denying or Thomas insisting on seeing with his own eyes or the rest of them running to leave Jesus alone. But here's the deal. This is what's important about Judas. Judas became the guide, the betrayer. Then in despair, he commits suicide. Between Matthew and and Luke's account here, we we can make up this story of, of him hanging himself and falling, exploding. I don't know how that entirely works. His despair over his sin led him to a disaster. Not so with Peter. Peter, on the other hand, what did he do? He repented of his sin. He turned to Jesus. He wept bitterly and went to him. And Jesus restored him. Jesus restored him. Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God, and was restored. This is the reality is that we all like Judas or John or Thomas, we all in our own way betray Jesus, reject Jesus, ignore what's going on. But the good news, the gospel is that we can run to him, that we can pursue him and repent and that he is faithful. God is faithful. So hear what Peter said. Effectively, yes, Judas betrayed the Lord. And he betrayed us. But guess what? The scripture is fulfilled. God is not mocked. God's plan and his purposes move forward. God's not shaken. God's not thrown off course by this betrayal. The Holy Spirit will accomplish his will. His word will not return void. Peter emphasizes this. He quotes two passages from the Psalms. The first half of verse 20, he quotes from Psalm 69, verse 25. He says, let his habitation become desolate and let there be no one to live in it. And that word is fulfilled in how Jesus, how Judas died and the purchasing of a field with the blood money that became desolate field of blood. The second half of verse 20, Peter quotes a different psalm. I also love the way Peter's just kind of pulling these psalms out. Like I said, he's fresh off this Bible study with Jesus. These psalms are coming to his mind. Psalms 109:8 his office let another take this word this scripture is fulfilled in the way Judas is replaced by Matthias which is the second half of our passage okay so the scripture had to be fulfilled God's not shaken he's not shocked he's not moved By the betrayal of their brother. Yeah, it stings. And I love the reality, the tension there. It stings. We feel this still. But scripture is fulfilled. God is still moving. God is still sovereign and mighty. And we need to see him like that. We need to like balance this tension. That even in our pain, there's something reassuring about the reality that God is still Sovereign. Scripture from thousands of years ago is still being fulfilled. God knows what he's doing. We should be confident in that. So Luke tells this story of Judas' death, this plot of land, all of this, and why? Why? It's a really good question to ask in your Bible study, by the way. Why? Why is this here? Why? Why this ugly, brutal, tragic story? It shows that God's purposes will not be thwarted that his word will be fulfilled, even if it takes thousands of years. His purposes will not be thwarted. But why? why? Why is this story injected in this part of the scripture? Part of the reason, I think, is because it's not hard to believe that God's purposes are invincible when everything's going well. When things are peachy, it's not hard for us to be convinced that God is strong and unmovable and all-powerful and sovereign. But when things are going bad, when there's betrayal and lying and mistrust and death, then we all need this reassurance that the purposes of God are immovable, that he is strong and mighty, I think that's part of what Luke gives us here. Not even Judas or the power of Satan himself could undermine or escape from what God was trying to do. Not even the enemy himself could thwart God's plan. And this is good news. This is gospel for us. God is enthroned. So the next question, but why? Why replace him? Why replace Judas? It's the second half of this passage. Why, in the second half, devoted to this replacement of Judas? Why does Luke want us to see that the unstoppable will of the Holy Spirit expressed in the scripture, but includes the replacement of Judas? Specifically, it includes the replacement of him with somebody else who had been with them this whole time. Somebody who had been there through all of Jesus' public ministry. Who had seen all that Jesus had done since the baptism of John. This is not the same requirement that Paul lays out for an apostle later on. Paul says that, you, that his credentials of, a, of an apostle is that he says that he was one as untimely born, that he had seen the risen Lord, and that's his qualification as an apostle. But here, it's more. It's not just seen the risen Lord, it's seen the entirety of his earthly ministry. I think the important verse here is starting in verse 21. Let's read this. So, one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning at the baptism of John until the day when he had been taken up from us, one of these men must. Notice the power of that word, must. It's just like earlier, had to be fulfilled. One of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Again, why? Why? Why must one of these men also be a witness? I'm sure there's a lot of reasons. I don't have the perfect answer. I think part of the reason is that what's about to happen, this promise of power from on high, this building of the church that's about to happen, all these amazing things that are about ready to take place, in the midst of all of that, this could take, it could send the apostles into this spiritual high. It could send them off into this encounter with the Holy Spirit that leads, leaves them ungrounded. And I think it's important that they are not disconnected from the flesh and blood, lived out reality of the three years of the historic Jesus. This text is about balance. It's about bringing balance to what we're about to see, it shows that the pursuit upward towards more spiritual power and the expansion of the church and all that God's about to do through, through the book of Acts, it must never be disconnected from the person and work and life, lived out, real, flesh and blood, God, man, Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always point us back, yet we move forward with him, but he will point us back to the real Jesus. He exists. The Holy Spirit has an unwavering zeal to glorify the God-man Jesus. He exists to exalt him, to lift him up through us. The Holy Spirit will never simply be a substitute for Jesus. It always points us back to him. It doesn't short-circuit or work around what Jesus began to do and teach. That still exists. Everything the Spirit now does and says is oriented and tested by the once and for all revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus. We know this because John said, By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh... Is of God. I also think we learn some really, really practical things, some principles for discerning the will of God in this passage. John Stott in his commentary points out several of these. I just wanted to highlight them real quick. The context of all of this, this discerning of God's will and the replacement of Judas, it's all in the context of obedience. This is the 120 who had obeyed and walked a Sabbath day journey to Jerusalem. There was 500, then now we're down to 120. This is the context of obedience. The disciples were in fellowship and they had unity among them. This was not an isolated, often their own experience. There was this sense of unity. They followed the leading of Scripture. They were bold enough to make decisions because they knew from God's Word that this is what He wanted. This is really important because the the apostles didn't sense an outpouring of the Spirit until we'll look at that next week. This is before the outpouring of the Spirit. But God didn't leave them without guidance. The Spirit spoke through the Word. And they knew what to do from His Word. That's encouraging for us, guys. I've heard it said many times, if you want to hear a word from the Lord, open your Bible. Crack it open. He's speaking. Next, I think we miss this too often. They used common sense. Common sense. As they they looked for Judas's substitute... Should have the same apostolic ministry, must have the same qualifications that they did. They had to have been there the whole time. It's common sense. And lastly, and I think this becomes a theme throughout the rest of Acts, and you're going to see it over and over and over again. They were praying. Even though Jesus had gone, and at this point the Spirit hadn't come, he was still accessible to them by prayer. And he has knowledge of the hearts, which they lacked. They pray to the Lord. They say, you know their hearts. We don't. And the final thing, which is, it throws people off, they cast lots. Why? <laughs> Again, why? Why? It seems really strange to us that they'd roll dice on a decision this important. That's effectively what casting lots is. It's, it's like rolling dice. It seems odd to us. It actually isn't that odd if you read through the Old Testament. It's, it's prescribed many times as the way to make decisions. I think now we have the Holy Spirit We can trust the counsel of the Spirit. But the point here is that they trusted Jesus to make his choice known. And they settled with it. They did their homework. They presented two qualified men, equally qualified. And they trusted Jesus to make his decision known. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this story? You guys awake? Yeah. I think when we understand our place in the community of disciples, the grand drama of redemption, when we understand our place in the story of God and his work, that he's at work accomplishing on the earth, his mission that he's engaged in. When we see our role here, when we know the scriptures and we seek the scriptures, we see who, uh, who God is and what he's after on the earth, what his mission is. When we've gathered the necessary information, we've done our homework, we've seeked community and counsel, We pray, and then this is important. We trust the Lord. We make decisions, and we go with it. I'm sure that's probably hard for some of us. We want all the information. I want to know all the details, all the information, all the variables. I want more Bible study, more data, more options. More, more, more. But there comes a point where we have to just trust him, make a decision, and go with it. God knows, and this is ultimately God knows, if our desire is truly to glorify him. And if things don't work out the way we want them to, the good news is that doesn't in one bit change his affection for us. That was proved and demonstrated decisively on the cross. There's no questioning his care and affection for us. We have the Holy Spirit as the seal and the promise and the guarantee of that love. But we cannot get caught in decision fatigue. Perfectionism, where we Don't move out of anxiety. Is this really what God wants? Is this really where you're leading me? I don't know. I'm just not going to move. We need to learn to trust the Father's love. Learn to trust his power. Learn to trust his sovereignty, his goodness, and his mission. Do your homework. Seek the scriptures. Study. Seek guidance from Christian community, seek godly counsel. Let the mission of God lead you and guide you, and then act. Don't stand on the sidelines waiting passively, looking up to heaven. My prayer for us is that as a spirit filled community of disciples of Jesus, that we would all increasingly partner with the Holy Spirit in his mission to glorify Jesus on the earth. That we would be firmly anchored in this story of a historic Jesus, this God-man who really lived and really worked on the earth, this God incarnate who lived and ministered, And that as he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that the Holy Spirit came to us and clothed us with power from on high. Because if that's true, if that's really true, <laughs> if we're a, follower of, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit of God is really in us, if really clothing you with power, Let's live like that's true. Let's not forget it and ignore the reality of his presence and his power. Don't forget it. Don't ignore him. He will accomplish his will on the earth, but ultimately he looks for partners to walk with him, to serve with him, to join with him in accomplishing his mission to glorify Jesus on the earth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that even in the midst of tragic betrayal, you stand sovereign. That even when we feel hurt and alone on a roller coaster of emotions, that you are unmoved, Sturdy and fixed. That we can trust that you are good and faithful. God, I pray that you would give us a revelation. You'd show us the reality of the Holy Spirit clothing us with power. That in light of that, we would choose every day to partner with you on your mission. To glorify Jesus to work alongside you, with you, to be empowered by you and through you. Jesus, we love you and we exalt you. In Jesus' name,
0: amen.